welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 108 for the first third of May 2014. The topic I'm going to talk about today is another one about the basic science that you've probably never heard about, the practical application of uncertainty to getting around in the solar system. Since there's no specific claim to be talked about in this episode, I'm going to give you an introduction based on a dream that I had recurring when I was younger. Imagine, if you will, that you're flying high above the planet, soaring around the globe, like Superman, and then it's time to go home. But you're not sure where it is. You kind of know the general idea, and maybe you can get close, but who knows where specifically you need to go. Now let's say that you're Superman and you're flying to Mars, and you're blind. You start off in the general direction that you're told, but what if you're off in your trajectory by just the width of a human hair? On Earth, staring at Mars, the width of a human hair is nothing. But propagate that to more than 60 million kilometers, and it could be an issue. What this hypothetical child's dream gets to is the topic of this episode, and it's something that I only learned about recently, in the last two or three years. People like to think that they know things. I know where my car is. Just as important, I know where my car keys are. I know where my keyboard is as I wrote this episode. I can touch type, so I know where the keys are. If I'm off by a little bit, I can use the delete button, and then my fingers can easily slide to where they're supposed to be. I know where the refrigerator door is. If I'm particularly tired, then I may miss the handle at first, but I get progressively closer with each try, and I can finally find it. When I have my stalker spy camera lens on my camera, a 400mm with a 2x extender, and I aim it towards the moon, I start off by putting the lens in the general direction of the moon, and then I fine-tune the pointing. Then I can usually see a little bit of the moon, just a little bit in the viewfinder, and then I can fine-tune it more, and I'm finally aimed at the moon exactly. Since even with an 800mm effective lens on a 1.6x crop factor sensor for a nice 1280mm equivalent focal length still doesn't have the moon completely fill the field of view, I don't have to be pointed exactly at the moon. I have a little bit of leeway. But what if we're flying a satellite? I mean, sure, you have the rocket equation, something that Mike Barra thinks Werner von Braun stuck an extra term into to account for hyperdimensional physics that nobody seemed to notice, and then you can use that rocket equation along with orbital dynamics and Newton's form of Kepler's laws to figure out where your satellite is going to be. But how well can you predict that? How good are our numbers? If we leave the satellite alone for a year, will it be exactly where we thought it would be in the absence of any other outside force? The answer is sort of, and that's mainly because we don't know very well how strong gravity actually is. Gravity is among the worst constraint of the fundamental forces. Many of you have probably heard of the gravitational constant, or Newton's gravitational constant, or big G for short in physics. This is a term that Newton introduced into his universal law of gravity, and it's a number that can be thought of as how strong gravity actually is. Many people have measured it over the years, although the first measurement wasn't until 150 years after Newton's death, by Henry Cavendish, just before 1800. And the reason it took so long is because it's really small. Cavendish measured it by setting two large balls near two smaller balls, the two smaller ones held in place by a suspension system, with the idea being that, over time, the two large balls would attract the two small balls gravitationally, 
twisting the suspension, and then you could measure the time it took to twist a certain amount and the amount of force required to twist it and derive big G. This whole thing was kept inside of a wooden box to minimize air currents and temperature variations, and since this was 1797 to 1798, there were no big giant trucks going by to mess up the measurement. For the time, it was an incredibly accurate measurement, and he got it to within about 1% of today's measurements, an accuracy that wasn't surpassed for over a century. And yet, with all of our modern equipment, modern experimental design, and everything else, we only know it to 0.012%. The value is 6.67384 plus or minus 0.00080, all times 10 to the negative 11th meters cubed per kilogram second squared. But the point, again, is we only know it to a relative accuracy of 0.012%. That might seem highly accurate. 0.012% relative uncertainty is minuscule on the you know small scheme of things. But let's go back to being Superman, aiming at Mars. From Earth, being off by just 0.012% in your initial trajectory could cause you to miss Mars by a huge amount. Similarly, we have to know how big Big G is when calculating orbits and trajectories. In the last episode, I talked about forces and gravity, and you kind of have to know the amount of that gravitational force that's going to be pulling on you in any direction to calculate your orbit. Over the short term, like a day, a week, a month, 0.012% uncertainty in that force is not going to amount for much. But it adds up after a long time. As another way of looking at this, let's talk about asteroids and the likelihood of them hitting Earth. Here, you not only don't know gravity to an arbitrary precision, but you also don't know exactly where it is when you see it. Think of it this way. You're looking at a satellite image of the United States or whatever country you want on your computer screen. Unlike Superman, you have studied geography and actually know where your house is. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how exactly, to what precision, or to what accuracy you know where your house is on that map, you're going to be staring at a finite number of pixels on your computer screen. You can click on that pixel that represents maybe 100 kilometers on a side and then zoom in, and then you may be closer. But now you need to click on a pixel that's 50 kilometers across and zoom in again. 25, 10, 5, 1, and so on. By this point, when you're looking at pixels that are more like tens of meters or yards on a side, you can click on the few that are your house. Now, zoom back out to the 100 kilometer per pixel map and try to figure out how far it is from your house to, say, the middle of Toronto, Canada. Because each pixel is 100 kilometers on a side, it's going to be hard to make this estimate at the 1 kilometer level. Now, you might think that this is a contrived example, but it's not. This is exactly what observational astronomers have to do when observing asteroids and trying to calculate their trajectories. Let's say that you observe an asteroid that you know from past observations is about the distance of Mars, and Mars is at its closest approach to Earth, roughly 60 million kilometers away. Your field of view is that of a survey telescope, maybe, say, one degree on a side, or twice as large as the full moon and you're using a very expensive, high-resolution, astronomical CCD array, 4,096 pixels on a side, about 16 megapixels equivalent. You manage perfect seeing because you took the picture with a camera on a satellite, unblurred by Earth's atmosphere. How big is each pixel? You can use trigonometry to figure it out, and each pixel corresponds to very roughly 250 kilometers or 400 miles on a side. 
you know the asteroid is only a few hundred meters on a side, meaning that even though it should just be a tiny one one thousandth the size of each pixel, you're limited to the size of that pixel. You don't know where the asteroid is to any accuracy better than 250 kilometers. And I gave you really ideal circumstances with a very high resolution CCD in this scenario. It's usually much worse than that. But let's say that you use orbital dynamics equations to figure out where you think it should be tomorrow night. It's still out by Mars in terms of distance, so each pixel is again about 250 kilometers. But you predict that it should move about 30 pixels, or about 7,500 kilometers across your field of view, plus or minus some uncertainty. It actually moved, when you observed it, 35 pixels. Knowing its new location, you're able to project a revised orbit and lower the uncertainty on that orbit because you now have two data points and you can actually resolve that distance to some higher accuracy level than the individual pixel itself. This is why all new asteroids initially have very unknown orbits, but more and more and more observations let us narrow down that uncertainty. Now let's say that you observe it as it passes by Earth's moon, at the distance of Earth's moon. You use your same telescope and camera, and that means that each pixel is now only 1.6 kilometers, or about one mile across. You're still not going to resolve the asteroid. It would still only be one pixel if you had perfect seeing and perfect optics, but you now know its position to much higher accuracy. Circling back to gravity combines several observations of asteroids that are farther away than Mars, and with our 0.012% uncertainty on the value of big G, remember that's how much gravity actually pulls on things, and you get to the point where you may start to understand how odds of impacts are calculated for certain asteroids to hit Earth. From these uncertainties, we can create uncertainty ellipses. We think we know where its trajectory will take it, but projecting that one year into the future means that it's going to have a certain uncertainty to any given confidence level. That means, let's say that we're 50% certain that it's going to be within a very narrow region of space, but we're 99% certain that it's going to be within a larger region of space, and 99.999999% certain that it's going to still be in the solar system. That sort of thing. If instead you want to project it 10 years in the future instead of one year, then either your error ellipse increases in size, or your confidence has to drop. So you can now be 50% sure that it will be in a broad region, but only 10% sure that it's going to be in a very narrow region of space. More observations, higher resolution observations, closer observations, a better value for big G, and you can better predict its orbit. Practically speaking, that's what happened with asteroid 99942 Apophis. When it was first discovered in 2004, and we only had a very few observations, its probability of hitting Earth 25 years later in 2029 was calculated at 2.7%, just like we thought that asteroid would move 30 pixels in one day. But, as we observed it to move 35 pixels instead, observations of Apophis just that day rose to 64, and the chance of it hitting Earth was dropped to 1.6%. Two days later, we refined its diameter, and impact probability rose to 2.2%. Two days later, on December 27, 2004, observations numbered 176, and the probability of Earth impact was 2.7%. So up to this point, the probabilities were hovering at about 1.6 to 2.7% in just the first four days of observations, even with 176 observations. 
But later that day, December 27, 2004, after calculating its orbit backwards in time and looking at archival images of where it should have been, meaning that we had a much longer baseline in time of 287 days instead of just 4 or 5, we could narrow its uncertainty. The probability of a 2029 impact dropped to 0.004%, because we now had a much longer baseline of time, and so we could shrink those uncertainties in its orbit. Going back to the Superman headed to Mars example, this is as if you just adjusted your trajectory in the first five seconds of your trip, that was the original estimate, but with the archival data that gave us so much more time to extend the analysis backwards that we could refine the orbit much better. Instead of Superman only being able to adjust his trajectory in the first five seconds, he's now able to adjust his path for the first five minutes. As observations continued over the years, since it's now been discovered for about a decade, the orbit got better and better pinned down. 2029 was ruled out for an impact, as was 2036, although 2053 is still better than one in a million that it will hit. When Apophis came very close to Earth in 2013, last year, we got a better measure of its physical parameters and orbit, and so we could make even better and more accurate predictions. As of May 2013, based on 13 radar observations, 7 Doppler observations, 3,987 optical observations, all spanning 3,318 days, the chances of it hitting before 2060 are less than something like 1 in a billion, which is our threshold for saying that it's not going to hit. The highest chance of it hitting is in April of 2068, with the odds being 1 in 256,000, meaning that it has a 99.99961% chance of missing Earth. To complicate things, other than exactly where it is and gravity, exactly how it spins and other effects like the pressure of light are poorly understood. At this level, when we're trying to project the orbit out 50 or 100 or 150 or 500 years, these kinds of tiny effects can also add up, just like our uncertainty in the value of big G, and contribute to raising the uncertainty in our estimates. I like this example overall because it's a really good way of showing the entire nature of science. It's an iterative process. We can never really know what is going to happen, but the point is to get progressively closer to that objective observation that will show us whether we were right or wrong with our models. As a final example of the practical application of uncertainty in this episode, I'm going to talk about Pluto. Some of you may know that I've been doing some work helping to plan the observations that the New Horizons spacecraft will make as it approaches, passes by, and retreats from Pluto next year, the closest approach being July of 2015. In planning these, there are many things that have to be taken into account. Stuff like the amount of memory on the spacecraft, the amount of fuel, how much space each observation and each image takes in memory, how quickly it can be downlinked back to Earth, and how often we can do that, which telescope on the Deep Space Network will actually be pointed towards Pluto at that time, because we get different bit rates and all that other stuff, and where Pluto actually is, and where its moons are. We don't know how big Pluto is. We don't know where it is. We don't know how big its moons are. We don't know where they are or where they will be. I'm, you know, sure, I'm exaggerating a little bit if we were to use everyday definitions of the word no. We have a gajillion observations of Pluto and its main moon, Charon. We have many observations of Nix, Hydra, Kerberos, and Styx, but we don't have enough. 
we don't have a long enough baseline of time, especially with the four ones that were discovered in the last decade, Nix, Hydra, Kerberos, and Styx. In fact, we still call Kerberos and Styx P4 and P5 for planning purposes because they didn't have names while we were planning observations. We do have a decent idea of their orbits. We have so many star occultations by Pluto that we know its radius is 1,184 kilometers, but the uncertainty of that is plus or minus 10 kilometers, or 0.84%. That means that when we want to plan an observation with, say, the LORI instrument, the main camera, and we want to image Pluto's limb, the edge of the disk, we have to take that 0.84% uncertainty of its radius into account and the uncertainty in its orbit. It means that when we point the narrow slit of the spectrometer of Alice and plan for it to lie across the moon Hydra, we have to take into account our limited knowledge of exactly where it will be when that observation is going to be made and how big it is. How much uncertainty do we account for? Just like if I'm taking my 1280mm camera lens and aiming it at the moon, let's say I didn't know where it was to better than, say, 200% its size. And I can't look through the viewfinder live to correct for that. After all, Pluto is over four hours light travel time away. That means that if I wanted to point where I think Hydra is going to be, I may only have a 70% chance of it actually being in the field of view of my camera, because I don't know where it will be precisely, or even how big it is. Is a 70% chance good enough for this once-in-a-lifetime observation on a spacecraft that's going to take nearly a decade to get to Pluto, traveling faster than a speeding bullet? On the team, we say no. We plan for a 2.5 sigma observation, meaning that we need to be 98.8% sure that we're going to get the object in our observations. That means instead of, say, one image or one spectrum or one observation in general, we may need to take two or three, with slightly different pointings of the spacecraft to make sure that we cover that 98.8% probability ellipse. That means each object that we want to observe is going to take up more storage space and require more time to downlink to Earth, which also means that we don't get to do quite as much science as we want, but that's the price we pay for making sure that we actually observe the object that we want to observe. And since a few of you are really into this stuff, I'll add that as New Horizons approaches Pluto, we will be taking images of the system several times a day starting in January, and the team will be using those data almost live to update where the moons and the dwarf planet itself will be and how big they are. In our planning now, we're taking into account an assumed updated accuracy for those orbits. So what does all this mean? Well, I think that episode 94 wasn't that interesting. I mean, I record these and I think, oh, that was an excellent episode, and sometimes, uh, I'm not quite sure about that one. But since I recorded it, I'm putting it out. That was sort of how I thought about episode 94, the difference between error and probability episode. It was a lot of really dry stuff, but it's also an incredibly important topic, and the ideas contained within it apply to pretty much everything. In contrast, my discussions on image analysis around episodes 47 and 48 were pretty well received, even though at their root, they're talking about the same kinds of things, what you can actually get out of your data and what those limitations are. In that spirit of a practical application, I focused on these three real-life examples of how those concepts of uncertainty play out in our solar system, how our limits on measuring fundamental constants to the universe contribute to our limited accuracy in the ability to predict even where things are going to be. 
Pseudoscientists like to think that we know everything to an arbitrary uncertainty or an arbitrary accuracy. And so then, when scientists come out with a revised number, they scream that science is a failure because they've said the old stuff is wrong. Alternatively, pseudoscientists or prognosticators like to say that scientists are only willing to put qualified probabilities into numbers, values, or whatnot. Well, they are actually saying things with certainty that something is or is not or will or will not happen. These all show a basic lack of understanding of how science works. Hopefully now, after this episode, you will be better equipped to understand it yourself. This is a bit of a shorter episode because I've been busy working on a super secret project that hopefully I'll actually complete. The target date is the end of May. It is related to this podcast, uh, not this particular episode, but the Exposing Pseudoastronomy podcast. Hopefully, uh, possibly, a trailer will be out in maybe two or three weeks before the actual uh, thing. So with that said... That wraps up this shorter-than-normal episode for the 108th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time, like how to pronounce things. For more information about the podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, or you can send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. You can leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast. You can even tweet me. I'm on that new Feingold Twitter thing, at pseudo, P-S-E-U-D-O, astro, A-S-T-R-O. I do read every message. I appreciate the feedback. Uh, these days, I haven't been responding a lot. Again, I've been very busy. Uh, so... With that said, you know, if you have suggestions or topics, feel free to make them. And if you like the podcast, if you like the episode, recommend it to friends, recommend it to frenemies, and so on and so forth. <laughs>